Well, uh, hey church, good morning. It's my first time back here at Essex since we've uh, said masks optional, and it is, oh man, it's so good to see you guys, for real. Oh man, uh, thanks for being here. Online campus, hey to you as well, and uh, just a quick note to our 10 o'clock service. I'm over at North Ave for 10 o'clock, but thank you guys for being here, for worshiping, for engaging, and for uh, just coming alongside and being a part of this church family. Uh, before we get to the message, I just want to pass on something from Pastor Scott. He is away right now, um, and he is coveting your prayers this week. Uh, starting tomorrow, our denomination, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, we are holding what we call our general council. And this is every two years, our alliance family from all over uh, the United States, we get together, uh, pastors and leaders and official workers and all of that, and we, we spend a few days doing some spiritual refreshing and renewal and worship together, but we also come together to do the business of the alliance, you know, sitting in those business meetings and Robert's Rules and, you know bylaw, voting, all that really fun stuff. So Pastor Scott's asking for you to be praying this week for two things. Number one, for the Alliance as we come together, our Alliance family, to, um, to, for this really important event. And this council is a council of change. And with change, as you know, comes tension and contention. And uh, this, uh, this week has the real possibility, in fact, already has seen a lot of tension surrounding some of the things that the Alliance is going to be talking on and will be voting about. So uh, nothing that I don't think you'll feel necessarily where you're at in the pews or at home, but, but some big things as we move forward in thought process and some other stuff for the Alliance. If you want to check that out and learn more about it, go to cmalliance.com. That's our, our website. But he asks that you be praying for our denomination this week as we navigate some of that, and he's asking that you'd pray for him specifically. Uh, you might know that Pastor Scott serves on our national board of directors, and he also serves on the executive committee for the board, which is the, the board of the board, maybe we could say, as well as uh, on the board for one of our schools, Nyack, Nyack College, and uh, he's intimately involved with helping to navigate some of these changes and helping to walk through some of the tension and the disagreement involved around some of those issues. So I know he covets your prayers this week as he's uh, got a challenge ahead of him. An exciting challenge, but a challenge nonetheless. So be praying for, for Scott and for the Christian and Missionary Alliance, if you think of it, over the next few days. Appreciate that. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but on, on Monday nights, we have a group of college student, college age, young adult, 20-somethings that gets together to uh, study scripture. We hang out, we, uh, we spend time together, and we dig into God's word. It's really a great group and an, and an awesome time. And uh, I just want to say, if you're in that age or around that age, and you're looking to plug in somewhere to get involved, or if you know someone in that age group, uh, we'd love to have you. Or you can find it on Church Center, Church Center app on planningcenter.com, or uh, you can just reach out to me, and I'd get you more information and, and love to plug you in uh, directly with that. And uh, I say that because uh, this past year, this group, we started meeting in September. We've been walking through the Gospel of John together over this past year. So it's what, May 30th now? I think that's what the date is today. And uh, we started in September, so we've, uh, nine months or so, we've made it about halfway through John's Gospel. So we are, uh, you know, slowly walking, but the discussion has been really great, and we've been able to dive in pretty deep on some things. And uh, so I've been in the Gospel of John for a while. I've been thinking about it. We've been in it as a group and uh, discussing it and all that. So uh, what we're going to talk about today and next week, it really comes out of some of these conversations that this group has had over the past month or so as we've walked through John's gospel together and some of the thoughts we've shared and some of the things that we've seen in John. So today we're going to go 
uh, to John chapter 13. This week and next week, John chapter 13, to a story that I think many of us are probably familiar with, but it's a story that I think has some shock value that I don't want us to lose. And we become too familiar with things, we tend to lose that sort of, that shock that we might have initially from it. So I, I want to try to keep that for us today, but I want to I dive into this, this text as we see Jesus, right, the king of the universe, the savior, the Messiah, uh, doing the worst job ever. Willingly doing the worst job ever. So uh, the scene that we're about to enter into in John chapter 13, this really is like the beginning of the end. In the story that John tells of Jesus's life, this is the first stop for Jesus on the road to the cross. The long, slow build over the final chapters of John where Jesus walks to the end the climax, the goal of everything that his life, his ministry, what he's talked about has been working towards and that God has been working towards for generations. This is the first stop. It's the beginning of the end uh, as we head to the goal of Jesus's death and resurrection. So we're just gonna dive in. We're gonna go to John chapter 13. We're gonna read verses one through 11 today. Next week, we'll finish up the story. Uh, so we'll read a little bit. We'll talk about it. We'll read, we'll talk. We'll kind of do that as we go through the text this morning. So let's go to John chapter 13, verses one uh, through the first part of verse four. We'll read it. It says this. It says, It was just before the Passover festival. And Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. And we'll stop there. Uh, the first few verses here in the story kind of give us a, an introduction, uh, framing what is about to happen, and it highlights some of the themes that uh, John's gospel has led us through thus far. Uh, and we, we stop as Jesus is about to do something. He gets up from the meal. He's about to do something right now. And in a few chapters, he's going to go to the cross. And we're told in these first few verses we just read, the why, the reason, what compels Jesus to do this, the reason he goes to the cross and do what he's about to do. And it's because of who he is, his nature and his character. Uh, it says here in these verses that Jesus knew some things. In verses 1 and 3, it says Jesus knew. And then again in verse 3, it says Jesus knew. And it says he knew some things. So knowing these things about himself, he, he gets up from the meal and does what he's about to do. We'll read that in a minute. Verse 1 says that Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. The time has finally come the cross is just around the corner and everything in Jesus' life and ministry has been leading to this moment and now it's here. The hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And this, this doesn't just mean the hour has come for Jesus to die and then go to heaven. No, as we, as we continue John's story, we see that that's not how it unfolds. Jesus, uh, he goes to the cross. He dies. He rises from the grave. He spends some time appearing to his disciples and doing some things and talking with them. And then eventually he goes up to the Father. Um, this isn't a moment that's coming, the hour. No, death and then heaven. It's, it's more like a road that Jesus is walking. The hour has come. It's here. This moment with his disciples eating this meal, what happens over the next chapters, his arrest, his uh, 
his crucifixion, his resurrection, meeting with the disciples, all of that is part of the hour that is finally here. It's a road that Jesus is walking, the way that he's taking home. And Jesus knows the road that he's on. It says he knew that the hour had come. He knows he's on it and he knows where it leads. We're also told in verse three that Jesus knew the father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and that he's returning to God. It says he knew those things. Jesus knows his position. He knows his power as the one who's in charge of everything, right? He's supreme over all creation. He's supreme over all people. He's actually the one in charge, which is striking giving what he's about to do. And it says that he knows that. It also says he knows he had come from God. He knows his origin, that he had come from God. We read the opening verses of John's gospel way back in chapter one, 13 chapters earlier, verses one and two. It clues us into this. It says, in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Nothing, uh, without him, nothing was made that has been made. He is God. He is from God. He was sent by God. He knows his origin, where he comes from. He knows the eternity that he's a part of. We're also told he knows that he's going back to the Father. He knows his destiny. He knows that once he's walked this road, he's going to wind up back where he started, seated at the right hand of the Father with the world under his feet, reigning forever and ever. Jesus is so far above us, and he knows it. He knows it. He understands who he is, what he's doing, where he's going. He knows it. We're also told here in these verses, in verse 1, this about Jesus. It says this in the second half of verse 1. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved his disciples, his own in the world, these 12 very flawed guys that he's with and eating with. He loves the people in the world that God sent him to, to gather under his name. He loves you and he loves me. He loves his people. And it says he loved us to the end. Now, this word in Greek, the end, here that we translate in English, the end, it can mean two things. It can mean time, like to the end of something. He loved us to the end, meaning his death, the very last moment, right? Which he did, of course. But this word can also mean to the utmost, to the uttermost, to the furthest possible limit. Jesus loved us to the uttermost, all the way. He loves you as much as possible, and then some because he's God, <laughs> And we're told these things, what he knew, and the fact that he loved his disciples are the reason that he gets up from the meal. Knowing these things, loving his disciples, he gets up. It's because of who he is and the fact that he loves us, that he's about to do what he's about to do. And in the middle of all this, we're told briefly about Judas, that the devil has prompted him and he's made up his mind to betray Jesus. We'll get into that next week as we come back and finish up the story. I just wanted to acknowledge that that's there. But it's quite a contrast, and we'll see that again next week. So we're told these things about Jesus, that he knows. He knows his position and his power. He knows his origin, his destiny. He knows who he is and that soon he'll be back with the Father, reigning in power. And we're told that he really loves his people. And because of this, because he is who he is, and because he loves his people so much, 
he gets up from the meal about to do something. Something kind of shocking. So what does he do? Let's keep reading, find out. Verses four and five say this. So he knows these things, he loves his people. Verse four, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. Because of who he is, right? Because of who he is, because he loves these guys, Jesus gets up from the meal and washes some feet, washes the feet of his disciples. Uh, Feet can be, uh, let me say, just less than ideal, okay? They are well-used parts of our bodies, right? Walking, running, climbing, jumping, they get dirty, they get, they get sweaty, they tend to get smelly for some of us. Uh, my kids, they're still young enough that Taylor and I have to cut their nails. And a lot of times I'll realize they'll need their nail cut during, just in the middle of the day, they run through the house and they claw me as they run by and I say, right here, right now, we're doing this, right? So I get the nail clippers out, take your socks off, take your shoes off, and they peel those socks off and, you know, they're sweaty and there's lint all over them and then I got to touch them and clip the, you know, it's, it's, it's not great. Uh, and, that's, and that's with, you know, modern comforts of socks and closed-toed shoes, right? Dr. Scholl's wasn't around 2,000 years ago. And uh, if we were reading this as sort of ancient Near East people, when we read that Jesus gets up from the meal to wash the feet of his disciples, I think we would be really shocked by this. This would sort of floor us and stop us in our tracks as we read these words. It is shocking. Washing feet is one of the worst jobs ever. One of the worst jobs ever. In the dry, dusty dirt of the ancient Near East, open-toed sandals were the normal footwear, if you even had shoes. And if you had to go somewhere, you walked. I have business two towns over, well, guess what, you're walking. I got business around town, I'm walking in the dry, sandy, dusty earth. Um, And if you were traveling, you'd be walking on the road, right? And the dirt would kick up, the dust would kick up, it would get caked on your feet, mixed with your sweat, all that, it would just sort of, it would get on there. And not to mention, as you're walking down the road, uh, animals use the road too, right? Domesticated animals, donkeys, pack animals, whatever, people riding, and uh, you know, if you've ever been to a local parade or something and the horses come by, you know that they don't have much regard for where, uh, where things drop as they walk. Right? So you're walking on the road, the dirt, the dust, maybe dodging some you know, feces as you walk, maybe, maybe missing it and stepping it. I mean, that stuff gets on your feet. You're walking around town. City's not much better. Uh, in the ancient world, they didn't have pipes that went underground and drained sewage and all that. Oftentimes, they would dig a ditch down the side of the road and sewage would just, would just run down the ditch to wherever it was ultimately going to wind up cutting through the road maybe to go over to that side and as you're walking in the city streets that's next to you and you're dodging it, you're jumping over it. I mean, this stuff, it's there and uh, it's getting on your feet. Marketplaces, livestock, animals, produce, people crammed in together. I mean, anything, anything could end up on those feet as you're walking around town. Uh, Dirt, dust, sweat, and worse. Feet had a rough job and they needed to be washed. Jesus and his disciples, they're eating a meal together. And it was customary in the ancient Near East for the host of a meal to have the feet of the guests washed prior to the meal. 
as a sign of hospitality and care as you enter my home. I'm doing this, we're doing this for you, but also as a way to maybe keep your home a little bit cleaner as they came in. And this job of washing off the dirt and the sweat and everything else, the foot washing job was the job of the slave. It was the job of the slave. The slave would wash his master's feet after returning from a journey, and the slave would wash the feet of the guests coming into the house. And if possible, this job was reserved for Gentile slaves, for non-Jewish slaves, so as not to subject one of God's covenant people to the humiliation and the unclean nature of washing of feet. It was a job below any person of any sort of social standing. It's a gross job. It's a job that makes you unclean. Worst job ever. And yet, washing feet can be a very tender and intimate act. I mean, it's a part of the body that's not often touched by strangers. Many of us cover our feet in closed-toed shoes and socks. We, we wear slippers around our homes. I see some of you wearing uh, socks with sandals. Uh, and we go out shoe shopping and find the cute shoes, right? To... It's a part that's not often touched and cared for by other people. And there's a vulnerability by having your feet touch, touched by someone else. I was in high school... And uh, I think it was my senior year, after, summer after my senior year, we went on a, our youth ministry went on a short-term mission trip to a city center in Europe. And we were going to work with this uh, at-risk, or school for at-risk kids in the city center, doing some, you know, summer cleaning, uh, removing garbage, painting, light construction, that kind of stuff. So we were spending two weeks there uh, in the city center doing that stuff. And it's, it's early August, it's hot, it's sweaty, you know, there's like 25 of us teenagers, seven or eight adults, I can't exactly remember, on this trip. And uh, teenagers, I don't know if you know this about teenagers, teenagers don't sh might not shower so much, especially teenage boys, especially teenage boys on a missions trip, you know. I've been in contests to see who can hold out the longest without showering on mission trips, so uh, <laughs> yeah, so you can imagine. And uh, one of our last nights there, uh, as we came together for our evening session of worship and, and study, uh, we were told by our adults and our leader to, that tonight the adults are going to be washing the feet of you students. And we all, we all put up a protest like, no, 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 but uh, they insist we're going to do this. And uh, uh, we were probably talking about leadership and serving, right? We're on a mission trip and mimicking the act of Jesus here as we kind of give a practical example of what serving and leading looks like together. And I got to say, I felt really, really weird about it. I felt so weird about it, almost embarrassed. Uh, been working all week, been sweating, not showering a lot. Uh, I, I probably didn't shower that day, honestly. And I'm just sitting there thinking, I don't want you to touch my feet. I don't want you to go through that. And honestly, I don't want to go through having you touch my feet because it is such a weird, different, vulnerable position to be in. But eventually my turn came and I remember the adult dunking my feet in the water and wiping and get, getting in the toes and I like couldn't even look at them. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. And uh, I just, I felt really weird and vulnerable and uncomfortable about it. Not something you're not used to. Such a disarming and gentle experience. Uh, I hated it. <laughs> and uh, it really did feel humiliating from my point of view. Like, I'm sorry for you and I'm sorry for me. <laughs> 
to go through this. So here's Jesus, king of the universe, right? He's from God, he's going to God. He is God, he's walking the path to the Father. He's so far above his disciples, it's not even funny. And here he is doing the worst job ever. Wiping the dirt and the sweat and the grime from the stained feet of the people who followed him. And I think there's really three main reasons that he does this. Two that we'll mention today, one that we'll talk about specifically next week. So just real briefly, the three main reasons Jesus washes their feet, we've already touched on two of them. Number one, he does it because he loves them. He washes their feet because he loves them and he values them. By washing the feet of each of his disciples individually, he shows the value of each disciple individually. You know, we're told that part of his motivation is that he loved his people to the end. He loved them to the end. He loves his disciples. He loves each of them. He loves each of us. His foot washing is an expression of the love that he has for them. And Jesus, by taking the position and doing the act of the slave, he treats his disciples as honored guests elevating them and affirming their value in his life and in his mission. He loves his people. I think he also washes his feet because that's the kind of God that he is. This is the kind of God that we have. He acts in love and he served us because that's who he is. Those first few verses say that Jesus, knowing all these things about himself, understanding who he is, got up. It's the impetus. It's the reason. He knows the path he's on, his origin, his destiny. He knows his power. So he gets up from the table and washes their feet. Jesus lowers himself to do the worst job ever because that's the kind of God he is. He's so much greater than us in every way we can possibly imagine. But our God's not about forceful dominion. He's not about coercion or manipulation. He's about love. And so he loves and he serves. And this moment, I mean, before I say that, let me, let me just think about this for a sec. Like Judas is still there. Jesus washes Judas's feet, who he knows is going to betray him. Think about that for a sec. Right? Like, that's crazy. And this moment of washing the disciples' feet, like I said, it's the beginning of that road to the cross, the first stop to that ultimate moment where his, his love and his service is on display for us. This moment, washing the disciples' feet, points to that moment, the greater act of service and love. And as upside down as it might seem to us, God has served us. He has served us because he's a God who serves. He's a God who loves. It's who he is. And Jesus is showing that to us. And the third reason I think he washes the disciples' feet, well, in fact, I know he, because he says it explicitly in what we'll read next week, is because he's giving us an example to follow, right? We follow a God who serves. We should be people who serve, serve our God and serve one another. And we're going to dive into that more specifically next week. So we'll save that for then. But Jesus, motivated by who he is, his character, his identity, motivated by the love he has for his people, he lowers himself to this position of the slave and he washes his disciples' feet. The worst job ever. And he does it because that's who he is. And he does it because he loves us. That's the kind of God he is. 
Let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 6, John 13, verses 6 through 9 says this. So he gets up, he washes their feet, drives them off. And then it says in verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Uh, Peter doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet. Not because he didn't need his feet washed, I'm sure he did. Uh, I think Peter's looking at Jesus, right? The highest, the greatest, doing the lowest of jobs, doing the job that only the slave would do, the non-Jewish slave at that. And I think he's scandalized by it. Like Peter knows who Jesus is. Earlier in John's gospel, in chapter 6, he says it. He says, you are the Holy One of God. Where else should we turn? You have the words of life. He knows who Jesus is, the highest, the greatest Son of God. And while he doesn't understand the full picture, he knows enough to know, he's looking at Jesus, Jesus, you should not be washing my feet. You're too good for that. And Peter doesn't understand that this is who Jesus is. And this small act of feet washing, first stop on the road to the cross, and that's the greater act of service and humility to which the feet washing points. You don't understand now, Jesus says, but you will. You'll see. And Jesus asked Peter to trust him. I'm doing this for a reason, Peter. I know you don't get it, but I need to wash your feet. I need you to accept seeing me now as a servant because it's through a greater act of service, through a greater act of humility, through a greater act of love, an even worse job than this one, that your life will be secure in God forever. Trust me, Peter. Let me wash your feet. And of course, Peter, being Peter, has sort of an over-the-top response. He says, all right, not just my feet, but my hands, my head. Just give me a bath. Dunk it on me. And we'll finish up here, verses 10 and 11. Jesus answers Peter, by saying, those who have had a bath (laughs) need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. Because he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not every one of them was clean. We'll stop there. So Jesus responds to Peter's request for a dunking with a quick illustration. He says, well, Peter, if someone takes a bath, they they are clean. If that person then walks somewhere, they're still clean. They, they just need to get their feet washed because they got dirty while they were on the walk. So you don't need a bath, a bath, Peter. You just need your feet washed. Then he says to his disciples, he says, and you are already clean. But not all of you. And he's referring to Judas there, as we know. Right? Did they all take a bath except for Judas on the way there? No. Judas is uh, spiritually unclean. He's been tempted, prompted by the devil to betray Jesus. Um, And while the rest of his disciples are clean, he says, they just need a little touch-up. So we're going to pause there, and next week we'll pick up the story and we'll finish it. But as we uh, come to the end this morning, I just want to offer two thoughts on the story thus far, and sort of what that means and what it means for us, looking back on this first part of the story. So two thoughts for us today. First is that we have a foot-washing kind of God. We have a foot-washing kind of God. It's weird to say because he's so far above the job of foot-washing. 
If we go to the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, chapter four, uh, the writer of Revelation has this vision of God on his throne. And many think that the author of John's gospel is the very same person who wrote the book of Revelation, by the way. Little nugget for you. Uh, So he has this vision of the throne room in heaven, and he sees a throne, and he sees someone sitting on it. And he has, I think he has trouble describing it, so he has to put it in the best terms that he has available to him. And he says, he writes that the one on the throne has the appearance of jasper and ruby. These beautiful, precious stones just shining, gorgeous. And then he says the throne is encircled by a rainbow that that shines like an emerald. And we're starting to get the picture of the power and the beauty and the majesty here, right? There's torches and there's fire and there's all this stuff going on. Then he says that around the throne in the center, there's 24 little thrones with, uh, he calls elders sitting on them. They're clothed in white. They've got golden crowns on their head. He describes these guys that way. Then it says uh, that there's thunder and there's lightning and there's power and it's, and it's terrifying. And then the writer describes these four creatures flying around God's throne. And he says, uh, one looks like a man, one kind of looks like a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And by the way, they're covered in eyeballs and they have six wings and they're flying around. And uh, I can't help but think if one of these creatures were to drop here in this room in front of us, we might all just pass out from sheer terror. And these, these creatures were being described they're, they're immense, they're powerful, they're terrifying. The whole scene is terrifying. And yet these beasts, as they fly around God's throne, they can't even look at him. It says they cover their eyes. They can't even look at God because he's so much bigger and greater and more powerful than they are. These very creatures that might, that might send us into shock. And then it says that those elders on the throne, they throw their crowns and they fall down before God and worship him. And this is God. And this is the same God who washes the feet of his disciples. Like a slave, the same God that sits on that throne, the power and the glory is the same God washing the dirt and the grime off the feet of the people who follow him. The same God that dies on the cross because he loves you. And he loves you to the end. He lowers himself because he loves you and he's invested in you. We don't treat things that we're invested in the same way we treat things we're not invested in, right? Uh, You probably didn't treat the home that you rented or the apartment you rented the same way you treat the home that you own. Not, I hope you didn't treat that apartment or badly that you rented, but you're invested in a different way. You treat things differently, right? I'm not, I don't walk around town vacuuming lobbies of banks and businesses or clearing spider webs off of corners of buildings, but I'm invested in our church and over at North Ave when I'm there, I do. I, I walk around the property. I clean up garbage that I see. I vacuum when I need to vacuum. I see spider webs and I do that because I'm invested and I care about our place and our people and, and our community, right? We don't treat things we're invested in the same way we treat things we're not invested invested in. When we're invested, we're willing to inconvenience ourselves and do things that are less than pleasant because we're invested. Jesus is invested in you. He was more than willing to step out of that throne room to wrap a towel around his waist and to wash some feet, to wash your feet. And more than that, to go to the cross because that's who he is. That's who he is. He loves, he serves. This is our God. That's who he is. Final thought for us this morning as we wrap up. We need to have our feet washed by Jesus and we need to have them washed again and again. Peter wants his whole body washed, right? But Jesus says to him, no, no, (laughs) you're already clean. 
A couple chapters later in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 3, after Judas leaves, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, because I have called you to follow me, essentially. And you've, you've done that. You've followed me. Because he called them to belong to him. They are clean. If you have heard that call from God, if you belong to him, you are clean as well. But your feet still get dirty. And they still need to be washed from time to time. Life is full of ups and downs, right? Following Jesus, it's a bumpy road, and it's often bumpy because of our own doing. Uh, We hurt other people. We make mistakes. We offend others. And we offend God. It's true. That's what sin is. Sin is an offense to God. And it's serious. Sin is serious. But thankfully, we have a God who washes feet. 1 John Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says this. It says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us, right? We all sin. It's the truth. Verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When Peter objects to Jesus washing his feet, Jesus responds by saying to him, Unless I wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. Jesus must wash our feet if we are to belong to him. We can't waltz into heaven with dirty feet. So how do we come to Jesus to have our feet washed? Well, I think it's through the regular rhythm, as 1 John says, of confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Big scary words, right? They're not that scary. Confess your sins. Just acknowledge them. Acknowledge the fact that you sinned. God, I sinned. I did that. I'm sorry. Can't run from it. We can't ignore it. God knows. He knows already. But it's up to us to acknowledge it, hard as it might be sometimes. We acknowledge our sins and we speak it out to God. God, I sinned. I did that. I'm sorry. Confess your sins. And repent. Repent means uh, literally to to walk in a new direction, right? I'm walking this way. Repent means do a 180, walk that way instead. That's what that means. Walk in a new way. Stop doing the thing that you were doing and start walking in a way that doesn't include doing that thing. That's what repent means. And when we do that, confess, repent. He is faithful. He is just. And he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will wash our feet. You sin, I sin. You and I, we're going to keep on doing it. And Jesus is going to keep on being there to wash your feet. When we confess our sins, when we acknowledge it, and when we walk in a new way, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Because he's a foot-washing kind of God. So I wonder, in fact, I know there's some of us today here in this room, there's some of you at home that we could use a good foot washing. I know, I know I could. So uh, in a moment, we're going to pray. We'll close in prayer. And as we close in prayer today, I'm I'm just going to ask God to to wash our feet this morning, to forgive us of whatever it might be that, that we need forgiveness for, and to help us to walk in a new way with feet that have been cleaned by God himself. So as I pray, you may want to pray along with me and uh, kind of make these words your own, grab onto them however you want to do that. 
Um, you know your life, you know where you're at, you know what, and if you might need to come to Jesus for this morning, I know that for myself as well. I say just own it, let's acknowledge it, let's bring it to God and know that he is faithful and just. And that we come, when we come to him with dirty feet, he wraps that towel around his waist and he washes us. So let's grab onto that amazing love and grace that we have in Jesus this morning and every day. So church, would you stand as we close in prayer? Uh, God, first, I just want to say today, thank you. Thank you that you make us clean. Thank you that you love us so much that you would step out from that throne room, the mighty, awesome power in the throne room of heaven to come and not only be like one of us, but become like the least of one of us. To make us clean, to wash our feet. God, we know that you love us and we know that you value us. Thank you that you're always there, ready to forgive us and to wash our feet when we come to you. So God, this morning I just say, and I think we together say as a church family that we are sorry for the ways that we have sinned. We are sorry for walking to you with dirty feet. And we ask, Lord, that you would cleanse us, that you would wash us so that we can walk in right relationship with you. And when that day comes, when we close our eyes, we can open them anew, see you face to face and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Wash our feet this morning, Lord. And as we go through this week, God, would you constantly remind us of your amazing and abounding grace and presence with us so that no matter what happens, we would continue to walk faithful to you in love, not only of you, but of our neighbors as well. Holy Spirit, be with us this day as we go from this place. We pray all these things in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen, church. Go in grace and peace. Great to see you today. Amen.